When I was a boy, I uh, grew up in a small town. It didn't last long because middle fourth grade, our family moved to St. Louis, and so I spent the next couple of years kind of in a culture shock, trying to adjust to life in a much bigger city. But at least for the first few years of my young life, I lived in a small town. And in this town, like most small towns in America, there was a street called Main Street. And it was called that for a reason, because that's exactly what it used to be. It used to be the Main Street. I mean, it was the the place where everything was happening. Main Street was a street that brought you to the very center of that town. I mean, literally, to the center of its business and its commerce, the center of its life and its activity. But then over the years, things changed. And in that town, again, like most small towns in America, Main Street's not Main Street anymore. The stores, the shops, the businesses, they've moved out. Some just moved completely away. The others now sit on the edge of town, out there by the McDonald's and the Walmarts out there by the highways and the interstates that bypass those little communities. Main Street's no longer the road that brings you to the heart of that town, to the center that keeps everything in that community up and going. Main Street is not the Main Street anymore. Is that our story? Our testimony? Especially after we've been following Jesus for a couple of years. I mean, when we first met Jesus, we were madly in love with him. We were so excited about this, this new life we had with the Lord. He was sitting on the main street of our hearts. Everything we said, everything we did just revolved around him. And yet over the years, the enthusiasm began to fade because other activities and other attractions began to pull our heart different directions. Oh, Jesus is still a part of our life. But that's the problem. He's only a part, just a small part, because other people and other things have become a priority for us. That's exactly what had happened here in Nehemiah. This is why Nehemiah leaves the palace in Persia and comes all the way back to Jerusalem. Yes, the walls are down. And they've been down for 140 years. And I mean, that's bad. But what's really bad is the people's faith has crumbled. God is no longer a priority in their lives. You see, you need to appreciate what it was that was supposed to make Jerusalem such a great city, such a special place to be. It wasn't the biggest city in the world. It wasn't the richest city in the world. And it was never intended to be. You know what was supposed to set this town apart from every other community in the world? Not its buildings, but the people. The way they lived their lives, the way they loved each other, and most importantly, the way they loved their God. Jerusalem was supposed to be God's home the place where he would reside in a very unique and special way. And the people who lived in here in this community, they were supposed to be God's people, meaning what happened here in this town should be something different, very, very different than what you see happening anywhere else. So don't miss the point of this book, the book of Nehemiah. Chapters 1 to 6 are all about rebuilding the walls, but that's only a means to an end. Because when you get to chapter 7 to 12, you, you come to the heart of the story, what this book is really all about, what Ezra, Nehemiah, and all the other leaders are really trying to accomplish. Once you've got the walls in place, once you've got the structure, now it's time to get down to the real work, rebuilding the community that lives within those walls, a community where God is a priority in everything they do. And part of that rebuilding process, part of getting this community back on its feet, spiritually speaking, part of putting God back on the main street of their heart, is what Nehemiah talks about here in chapter 9. Confession. Now I want to give you a little context, because I think a lot of us misunderstand what the Bible really means when it talks about this subject of confession. C.S. Lewis, he tells about the agony that he went through after the death of his wife. 
And he said part of the anguish that he felt was due to this fact, he started to forget. I mean, after a long period of time, he found it more and more difficult to try and recall just exactly how she used to smile, how she used to walk and talk, how she used to handle herself in various settings, the memory of her beauty. Not just the beauty of her physical form, but what it was that made her so beautiful as a person. That memory was beginning to fade. That bothered him. That made him feel guilty. It made him feel like he was betraying her, like he wasn't being loyal to her. Because when we forget, we become strangers. And C.S. Lewis said, I didn't want my wife to become a stranger to me. Well, that's exactly what the Jewish people are, are wrestling with here in chapter 9. Chapter 9, we have the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. Beautiful prayer. But you notice as you read through the prayer, much of what they're doing as they're praying this prayer, they're rehearsing their history. They're going over their past. What kind of a relationship have we enjoyed with God in the past? But as they're going over their past, they begin to recognize a pattern. Hey, do you notice this? It didn't just happen to us. It happened to our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers. It seems like every time we got ourselves into trouble, we got into trouble because we allowed God to become a stranger to us. We forgot who He is. We forgot all that He has done for us. So in this prayer, what they're doing is they're fixing, they're lifting their gaze and they're fixing their eyes upon the Lord, fixing their thoughts upon Him, beginning to review all the facts about God, rehearsing the, all that is true about Him so they can once again just marvel at His love. Wow, you remember when He did this? For marvel at His compassion and marvel at His generosity because it's going to be that picture of grace that draws them away from their sin and makes it possible for them to once again get close to God. Now, what does that got to do with confession? Well, a lot of times I think when we hear that word confess, we immediately think of something negative. All right, all right, you twisted my arm, I admit it. I embezzled the $10,000 from the company. Yes, yes, it's true, I confess. I, I ate all the ice cream, that's why the box is empty. I'm the one that did it. You only do it because you have to. You only do it because you got caught. I mean, when you do it, you do it reluctantly, like it's something bad and miserable and negative. And yet in the Bible, often, when it talks about confession, it pictures it as something positive, something good, because it's something that's going to lead to a blessing. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, confess what? Confess this fact, this truth. Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we see happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. They're not just confessing sin. I mean, they're doing that. Hey, we did wrong. We were wrong. You have that here. But much of the chapter, what the people are doing, they're confessing the facts about God, all that is true about Him. You see, in the Bible, confession is telling the truth. But you're not just telling the truth about yourself. You're also taking time to tell the truth about God and recognizing how the truth about God will change the truth about me. So in the Bible, confession is not a bad thing. It's something good. Now, like Rob mentioned earlier, in a couple of weeks, he's going to come back, the same chapter, and going to take a look at this magnificent prayer and what it teaches us about praying, about having a, a really good conversation with the Lord. But today, what I want to do is just look at how the people got themselves ready to pray this prayer, how they got themselves ready to make this confession. So we're just going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Take a look at this with me. Nehemiah chapter, one, verse, or chapter 9, verse 1. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, what month? The same month you read and studied about last week, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's this month that the Jewish people called Teshra. Now, they had a lunar calendar, so their days don't always match up exactly with the days in our calendar, but Teshra usually comes somewhere around our September, October, this time of the year. 
And for the Jewish people of all the months of the year, this month, Teshra, one of the most important months of the entire year because of all the celebrations and all the festivals that were taking place, that occurred in this month. For example, the first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets, what you read and studied about last week, chapter 8. It's what Jewish people today call Rosh Hashanah. It's New Year's Day. It's a day of new beginnings, a fresh start. And this fresh start was made possible by the grace of God. That's why back there in chapter 8, when the Jewish people are beginning to weep because they heard Ezra reading the scripture and explaining to him what it meant, and they begin to recognize this gap between themselves and God, and they begin to weep. And Nehemiah comes along and says, no, don't weep. This is not a time to weep. I mean, there are other occasions when that's appropriate to do, but not on this day. This is a new day, a day to celebrate how God's beginning to write a new chapter in our story. This is a day to rejoice. And then you come to the 10th day of the same month, and once again, a very special event, very important day. It's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day when all the Jewish people come together to remember how God has provided for our forgiveness. And then just five days after that, on the 15th, from the 15th to 22nd, you have the seven-day-long festival, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booze. Kids always look forward to this because all week long, all the Jewish people come out of their houses and all week long they camp out in tents because they wanted to remember how for 40 years God had brought them safely across the desert. And every day out in that desert, he always took care of their needs. So it was a festival filled with lots of joy and laughter and all this thanksgiving because you remember, I can trust God no matter what situation I find myself in. He's going to take care of well, after 22 days of all these different holidays and celebrations, you're kind of partied out. It's time to get back home and get into the routine of daily life. Time to go back and catch up on all those chores and responsibilities that you've been neglecting for the past 22 days. But notice what happens. A full two days later, on the 24th day of the month, when you'd expect everybody to just, okay, go back to what you used to do, they don't. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites decide to gather again. And get this, there's nothing official on the counter that says they're supposed to do this. There's no command back there in the book of Leviticus where God says, okay, on the first day you do this, and then on the 10th day, here's what I want you to celebrate, and then on the 15th, 22nd, here's what I want you to do. Now on the 24th, God never talked about the 24th. Ezra and Nehemiah haven't said anything about this either. They're doing this on their own initiative. This is their own idea. Hey, one more time, let's get back in the Word of God. One more time, let's get together and pray for each other. This is remarkable. After all, they've already been through. They didn't have to do it. They want to. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites decide voluntarily to get together again. And this time, when they come together, they decide to do it in this way, with fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. The dust on their heads would remind them of uh, scriptures like in the book of Psalms, isn't it? Psalm 103 says, we're nothing but dust. We're fragile, we're frail, and it doesn't take much to knock us off course. It doesn't take much to cause our lives fall apart, break apart, go to pieces. We're nothing without the Lord. But the dust on the head would also remind you, we have soiled our lives, our hearts are not clean, our soul has become dirty and corrupt, we have sinned. And in our sin, we have separated ourselves from God. God hasn't moved, but we have. And in moving away from the Lord, we've allowed God to become a stranger to us. That's not right. It's time for things to change. To begin to see the determination of the people here, all the effort they're putting forth to get close to God. It's exactly what you read over in the, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the Bible talks about the early church, and it says, and they devoted themselves. Not... 
Well, they kind of dabbled in this every once in a while. No, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I mean, they were committed. They made all kinds of sacrifices. They went over the top in their effort to invest in every one of these activities so they could be sure to stay close to the Lord. We see that same kind of energy and effort here. Notice what else they do. Verse 2, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, right here, we learn something really important about confession. It is the very opposite of what we often see on our TVs. You know, all these talk shows and all these reality shows where people are spilling their guts and they don't hold a thing back. I mean, they tell us everything there is to know about themselves, more than what we need to know. They're revealing their deepest, darkest secrets for millions of people to see. And the problem with what they're doing, they're just simply exposing the shame and nothing more. They're exposing the shame to celebrate it and make a buck off of it. It's the very thing the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, it talks about those people inviting others to glory in their shame. The Bible never encourages us to do that. Never. In the Bible, the shame is brought out in the light only so you can get rid of it and put it behind you and move on to something much, much better. Listen, in the Bible, there's, we learn in the Bible there's a big difference between being honest and being real and being open. Jesus was always honest and always real, but he wasn't always open. You ever notice that? The number of different times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus was holding information back, the number of different times when he would refrain from sharing his real mission, when he would refrain from revealing his true identity, and he wasn't being deceptive, he was being wise. Because Jesus knew there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. There's a time when people need to know, and there's a time when they don't need to know. And often the difference between the two is determined by who's involved and the nature of the relationship that they enjoy with you. You don't talk to your spouse the same way you talk to the taxi cab driver. Those two people do not share the same level of intimacy with you. So consequently, they don't receive the same kind of information. And what that means when you confess, you don't confess a sin to the entire church where you've only actually hurt two people. Nor, on the other hand, do you just confess to two people a sin that has hurt and damaged the entire church. Who's involved and who's been affected by this determines to whom you confess. So being honest and being real doesn't mean that you're always open with everything. Here's an example, Nehemiah chapter 9. The Israelites, those of Israelite descent, they separate themselves from all foreigners. Why? Because this prayer they're about to pray, it's not for the general public. I mean, the last part of chapter 8, when they had that Feast of the Tabernacles, there were non-Jewish people involved in that, and rightfully so. But now, two days later, chapter 9, two days later, now this time, the Jews shut the door. Nope, you're not allowed in. They leave the non-Jewish people out. Uh, what we're about to talk about here, this doesn't involve you. These are the sins that we committed, not you. These are the sins we committed. This is a matter between us and the Lord. So it's a much more private gathering. And now I want you to notice, as we finish up verse 2 and verse 3, notice as they begin to make this confession, what this confession is, it's not just a confession of sin. It is also a confession of faith. You know, it's like the difference between the baptism that was performed by John the Baptist and Christian baptism. They're not the same thing. One was performed during the Old Testament, the other during the New Testament. One was under the Old Covenant, the old arrangement with God, but the other was under, is now under the new arrangement with the Lord. Big, big difference there. Number two, when people came down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, they were baptized so they could be forgiven of their sins. We experience that same blessing in Christian baptism, Acts 2.38. We are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. But in Christian baptism, we not only receive the blessing of forgiveness, we also receive something else, something the disciples of John didn't. We also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And then Matthew and Mark are clear to point this out. When people came down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, they came confessing their sins. Christian baptism, we come to meet Jesus in the waters of baptism, we come confessing our faith, our faith in a Savior. We've got a Savior who can save us from all our sin. Well, we're going to see these two elements here, chapter 9. Not only a confession of sin, but a confession of faith in God and what he can do for us in our future. Watch. Last part of verse 2. So once they've got the people out there, they're where they're gathered, they, they stood in their places and they confess their sins and not just their sins, the sins of their ancestors. Hey, there's a pattern that's been going on here. A cycle and it's time to break the cycle. It's time to bring this behavior to an end and move on to something better. But move on to where? They need a vision of where, they, where they're supposed to go, where God wants them to be. So verse 3, and they stood where they were and they read. And the word here literally means to read aloud. And they read aloud from the book, not just any book, God's book. The book of the law of Yahweh, their God. You know, I wish we had a better translation. Because this word law, the book of the law, you know, that, that just has negative connotations. You, you need to appreciate ancient Jewish people. When they hear that word law, it's the Hebrew word Torah. I love that word, Torah. It's the Hebrew word Torah. And when ancient Jewish people heard that word Torah, they weren't thinking law, commandments, rules, regulations. Okay, here's what I have to do because God said so. So if I must, I must. Here's my duty. Here's this burden that's been put on my life. They never thought of it like that. They heard that word Torah. They thought of something good something wonderful, something delightful. They heard that word Torah. They thought, here's God's instructions on how to put everything together in just the right way so that we can enjoy a good life. Torah means here's God's directions on the right way to go so we can reach and fulfill our God-given destiny. Torah, here is God's personal word to us. God's talking to us. And they did that for a quarter of the day. For a quarter of the day, they read aloud the words of God so they could know who God is and what he wants for them. But then you'll notice the next quarter of the day, now it's time to make a response. So they spent the next three hours responding to the Lord. And how do they respond? Confession. But they've already confessed their sins. So this time, what are they confessing? They are worshiping Yahweh, their God. They're speaking words of praise. Oh, isn't it wonderful who God is and what he's really like? Slow to anger and abounding in love, gracious, merciful, and willing to forgive. Isn't it wonderful what he's promised to do for us? See here in verses 1, 2, and 3, we have a picture. It's a picture of a patient who's getting ready to go into surgery. God's the physician, the nation of Israel, they're the patient. They need this major surgery performed upon their soul. Well, isn't it true? When you're facing surgery, don't you kind of feel a twinge of fear? Oh, man, going to put me out. I'll be you know, totally out of it, totally under somebody else's control. Somebody else is going to cut on me. You know, boy, I hope this goes well, but i got to be honest. I'm kind of nervous about this. I'm kind of scared, and that's understandable. So how do you cope with the fear? Well, one of the ways, you spend time with the doctor. Just who is this guy It's going to be working on me? And you find out what he's really like, and you learn about his talent and his expertise. He's done this same surgery hundreds of times before. Always gone well. There's never been a mishap. And then you hear the nurses talking, oh, he's a wonderful man. I mean, this isn't just a job to him. He really cares about his patients. Well, that's encouraging to hear. And then one day you're sitting there in the office and visiting with a family doctor. And, and hey, do you know this physician? Oh, yeah. All the doctors in town know about this guy. He's the best in the field. So that morning you come in to visit with your friend. They're in the hospital. They're in pre-op. You want to come and have a word of prayer with them before they go into surgery. As you step into the room, you see this big smile on their face. Huh? You seem kind of optimistic. Oh, yeah. I met the doctor. He's a great guy. He's excellent. I've heard all the nurses and all the doctors talking about him. He's the best in the field. I couldn't have anybody better operating than me. 
He's going to do what is right. He will take care of me. That's exactly what we're reading here, Nehemiah chapter 9. After this month-long exposure to the Word of God, the Israelites are beginning to realize, my God is excellent. My God has this great reputation. Why, he's dealt with sinners like me many, many times before. He knows how to clean up this mess. I can trust him. God will take care of me. So, what are we learning about confession from Nehemiah chapter 9? We're learning, according to the Bible, confession is not just a focus on the past. It is also a focus upon the future. You're not just taking time to consider what has been done, but you're also taking time to contemplate. Now, because of God, here's what can be. When you confess, according to the Bible, you're not just breaking the breaking the cycle and trying to get away from your past, you recognize the only way to get away from the past is to consciously put yourself in the hands of God because he's the only one who can change things for the better. Confession, it's telling the truth. It's taking time to recognize the truth about yourself with all your weaknesses and all your flaws and all your sin, but it's also taking time to tell the truth about God who he is and what he can do for you, and recognizing that the truth about God can change the truth about me. So, are you ready? And are you willing to make that confession today? Let's pray. God, you know the truth. You know everything there is to know about each one of us. You see what is good, and you see what is bad. You see what is praiseworthy, but you also see what is shameful. You know all that is ugly and awful about us. God, we can't hide a thing from you. And we understand that, God. But today, what we really need, we need to see the truth about you that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, that you are gracious and merciful and willing to forgive. So God, let this be a day when we're willing not only to be honest about ourselves, to confess our sins, but God, let this be a day when we're ready, we're eager to confess our faith, how we believe in your goodness, how we believe in your grace, how we believe in your everlasting, unfailing love. God, we really believe the truth about you can change the truth about us. God, let this be the day when you take hold of each one of our hearts and remove everything that is wrong and everything that is unholy and unworthy from our lives. And God, let this be the morning we begin to experience again that hope, that peace, that joy that comes because we're close to you. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons why participating in the Lord's Supper is so special to us here at New Hope is because this is a unique opportunity for us to get close to God. You remember that song that we sing here a number of times here at New Hope, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise. Well, here's one of the ways we get our heart in tune to sing about and talk about the grace of God by participating in the Lord's Supper. But there's something else about that song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. I think it's in the second verse where you sing these words, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Have you ever wondered, what's an Ebenezer? Well, the Bible talks about back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Israelites have just uh, experienced a victory over the Philistines. This is an upset victory. Nobody expected them to pull this off, but they did. But the only reason they actually pulled it off is because of the grace of God, because of the unique way he helped them. And Samuel wanted to make sure the people didn't forget that. 
So right after the battle, he comes along and he builds this altar. He raises up this monument and he calls it Ebenezer. Because the word Ebenezer means we didn't get to this point on our own. We only got here by the help of God. It was because of God, what he did for us, we got to this point. But here's what's interesting about that monument and that word Ebenezer. It's not just a testimony of faithfulness. It is also a statement of faith. The God who got me here is the God who's going to get me there. The God who did this is also the God who's going to do that. The God who took care of my past is also the God who's going to provide for my future. Is that not what we're doing every Sunday morning? We eat the bread and drink the cup. We are raising an Ebenezer, a tribute to God, that the God who helped me before is the God who's going to help me again. You see, this morning, we're not just confessing sin. We are confessing our faith, our faith in a great and awesome God. Let's pray. God, we are here to celebrate Jesus. We want to lift him high. We want to exalt and magnify him as our Lord and our Savior. God, we are here today to confess our faith in Jesus. And so we partake in his name. Amen.